It is Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. This is Messiah Matters number 379. Passover is quickly approaching, and I'm pumped. My name is Caleb Haig. Perum's even closer. I'm Rob Dan. Nice. You know what? You're huge right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna fix that. That matches my big head, dude. Exactly. I'm gonna fix that while while you <clears throat> tell me about your your week. How's shrink it going? My head. I'm gonna shrink your head real quick. Um How's life, man? God is good. Yeah. God is good. I agree. I've, I've been reading Esther a lot, thinking about Esther. Yeah, tonight, man. Yeah. What's really cool, uh, Mike Gonzalez and I have had to go back and forth this morning in email about Esther, comparing Greek, the Greek version with the Hebrew, because they add, we were just noticing all the funny things that yeah. the Greek version adds, like mention of prayers to God, supplication. But Mike says the ones his kids like is where Esther puts dung on her head as a sign of mourning. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> but also I know I just was kind of going back and forth and I noticed also that it's the Greek Esther specifically identifies Haman as an Amalekite Ooh. and and brings up the uh, traditional ancient hostility right. between Israel and the Amalekites, which is there in the Hebrew by implication only. You know, in the Hebrew, it doesn't come out and say that Haman was a Malachite. You right. To, you do the math. Um, but uh, anyway, good stuff. Yeah, you said, here's the thing, is that we've never really had a show that actually, like, talked about Purim. But here's the thing, is that I think the reason that we've never had a show like ha- that. We never have, huh? Never. We have never had a show that's talked about Purim. And uh, is that because we don't think it should be in the canon? <laughs> Definitely not. No, <laughs> kidding. Um, the, the I think the reason for me is because there's okay. Now, I certainly think don't don't hear me say that. Uh, yeah, there's uh, don't take this the wrong way. I certainly think that we can um, that we can learn things obviously from Esther, the book of Esther, and and whatnot. But when it comes to the festival of Purim, there's not like. There's not a whole lot to say. In my mind, there's not just a whole lot to say about it, if that makes sense. What what I think when I think the the festival of Purim is, you know, it's kind of like the old Jewish uh, proverb or the the reason for every festival, right? Which is, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, theologically, there are certainly implications that we could talk about in the book of Esther. I think my Old Testament prof said it the best. He said... Uh, at least this is the thing that that like really struck me when we were going through the book of Esther was uh, he said, look at any other book of the Bible. You know, the Exodus, you got a burning bush, you got a, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. You have the angel of death coming and, you know, you have all these huge miraculous things. You know, uh, God is speaking to David. David kills a giant, you know, all these miraculous things. But in the book of Esther, it's just people... There's no, like, God's not coming in a huge cloud. There's no miraculous thing. It's God's providence, at his sovereignty acting in the life of average people. And I thought, wow, you know, like, in other words, this book is relatable. You don't see God showing up in, like, some huge, you know, miraculous way. In fact, God's not even mentioned. So... It's uh, I and I and I really appreciate that. 
I really appreciate that. Anyway, uh, do you have anything else that you want to tell us about? No, it's just I think back to the Greek translation quote or versions of Esther, which reflect that in Second Temple times, there were at least some Greek Jews that were, or whoever created the Greek versions of Esther, felt the need to pad it. Right. They felt the need to to represent the Hebrew Esther for right. something other than what it is. Right. Yeah. And they and we can look at the things that that they padded by comparing them, reading them together. And I think that tells us about their sense of religiosity. Sure. Of what they valued culturally. Um, but I don't I, I don't think uh, I think I made this comment to Mike this morning was that uh, I think, you know, Paul, if you look at Paul's theology, he would absolutely reject the Greek version of Esther. Sure. Um, so anyway. All right. Just good conversation. stuff, man. That's, hey, that was free, everybody. That wasn't even on our list of things to talk about. That was just, that was the extra Okay. Exactly. That was the extra. Well, we're full of extras. I'm I'm getting like a, a buzz in my mic and it's and it's bothering me, but I don't know what to do about it at this point. So we're just going to let it go. And my daughter could sing that for you if you wanted. Um okay. Uh let's Either that or you're slowly turning into a digital uh entity. That, and and that, the distortion in your voice is actually not in the it, mic, it's but just in, part of it in, in me. You. Yes. All right. Uh let's go to so we have a lot to talk about in terms of First Corinthians, and that's going to be our main topic. And actually, we have two emails to that uh, specific point, and then we also have our own personal musings about this passage. So we're this is it's good, but we're gonna we're gonna go here first. So we were talking, I think it was last week. We we're talking about uh, basically should pronomian Christianity become a denomination, and I gave my thoughts on that. And maybe that was two weeks ago. Anyway, uh, I I clipped a small clip of it, and, and somebody named Ellie or Eli uh, writes in on, on that uh, video. He says, "Why any denomination? Is this not man's creation that divides the body? Broad strokes are typically applied to Hebrew roots." as well people ignorantly calling others heretics simply for being obedient to the Father. Now, I'm not exactly sure where it is that uh, Eli is coming from on this. Is he coming from the perspective of uh, no one should call anyone else a heretic, or is it that he's experienced people calling people in the Hebrew Roots Movement heretics? Um, Here's the thing about... So this is an interesting point, because I don't think that uh, people are... Well, maybe I should say, I, okay, me personally, I've I've come on strong on people in the Hebrew Roots Movement and called certain people heretics, um, not because of their belief in the, uh, in, in the Torah, obviously. I'm pronomian myself, so that would make no sense. So I'm not critical of people who want to keep the Torah. That's great. What I'm critical of is people who uh, deny the deity of Christ or people who reject doctrinal, uh, foundational, issues in doctrine uh, because they think it's Christian or because they, you know, whatever the reason may be. And actually, I was looking at um, the Hebrew Roots movement again yesterday, uh, doing a little bit of research for a video I'm going to make. And uh, it just struck me again, you know, we have all these people who kind of were the first 
people in the Hebrew roots movement to use the name to to actually uh, copyright Hebrew roots. I don't know if people realize that that's a copywritten uh, term, but it is. And uh, I was just going back through, and, and what struck me was how many people actually came from the Worldwide Church of God. So Armstrong was anti-Trinitarian. They were Binitarian. And, uh, you know, this kind of seeps into the early formation of this, quote-unquote, Hebrew Roots movement. And at the same time, you say, well, long before the Hebrew Roots movement shows up, you have the Messianic movement. Now, uh, let's. I'm going to finish this thought, and then I'll throw it over to you. <clears throat> Why any denomination? I think that's the main question here. I think that the the idea of denomination, can we see it in the Bible? Well, possibly. Um, there's certainly. I mean, we could we could argue whether or not it's a proper argument or not. We could argue that God even uh, breaks up the uh, breaks up Israel into tribes, and certainly you have different tribes. You know, people have their tribal tradition within each tribe, so that could almost be seen as a denomination and from the very beginning. Beyond that, in the New Testament, in the apostolic scriptures, we see that uh, people are called, they were Pharisees. They, you know, these Christians were Pharisees. So there's already a, you know, a partitioning out of different beliefs within the people of the way. To me, a denomination, it doesn't matter if it's biblical or if it's man-made, all it is is it's a help. It's a help to say, this is what I believe, or this is what that person believes. So whether or not you want to uh, uh, you know, call it a denomination or not, as soon as you start making lines in the sand, I believe this, as opposed to this, you're doing the exact same thing that denominations have done. That's all they're doing. So to me, I think denominationalism is actually a, a helpful tool. Uh, now, automatically discounting a denomination as a whole, that's, you know, that's something else that we could talk about. You know, I don't agree with the Methodists. Do I think that they're not brothers in the Lord? No, I believe there are many Methodists who are brothers in the Lord. Same with Lutherans, same with, you know, Baptists. Same. So um, now when we talk about Worldwide Church of God, do I believe that there are uh, genuine believers in the Worldwide Church of God? Yes, absolutely. Obviously, Armstrong is no longer around and Worldwide has, has disbanded, but there's offshoots all over the place. <clears throat> so I do believe that there are true brothers and sisters within worldwide. Um, so I don't think that we can di just discount altogether denominations. Um, but I think that it's helpful. What do you think, Rob? Um, I think it's it actually ties to our verse here of first, first Corinthians 11. Um, because he says in verse 18 here, here's the NSB for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And I in part believe it. So that's schisma there where we get schisms. But verse 19, for there must also be factions. And that's her that's the word hieresis. <laughs> that's, that's heresy. There must, in fact, be factions among you so that those who are proved may, be, may become evident among you. Right. So the idea is there has to be a separation um, and heresies whether you want to use the word or not, it's a biblical term that describes uh, the separation of those who are approved. That means by God. That means people who have genuine faith, they accurately grasp the message of the gospel and its implications, and they stand for the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Over against 
people who are peddling the word of God, wolves in sheep's clothing, they're trying, you know, people who are uh, following itchy ear teaching and running this way and that and are ungrounded in the word of truth. That's the word. And so as people who are growing in Messiah, <laughs> is that copyrighted? <laughs> growing in Messiah. No, as people who are growing in Messiah, we, I mean, the scripture teaches us that we are, even though we be pruned, we're not claiming perfection. It's that our fruit increases and that that's a, that's a trajectory of growth and an increase in confidence. Like we know how to build on rock. We're not still looking for a place to build. We're on the rock. We're building on rock. We've experienced what it's like to build on sand. We've seen it collapse. And we're like, we're not interested in that. Right. And so there's no reason to be ashamed to say that's heretical. That's a heretical doctrine. And I can tell you why it's heretical. And if you don't want to believe me, if you want to say I'm unloving, if you want to say I'm ignorant, then fine. I, it doesn't really matter <laughs> what you call me, you know, in the long run, we'll see, you know, but. And Paul um, does that. Paul, Paul does that a lot, right? Yeshua did it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, what did John the Baptist say to, to those coming out? You brood of vipers. Right. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit, meat of repentance. Don't, and don't say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, because Abraham is able to raise up from these very stones, children to Abraham. Right. The axe is at the root of the trees, baby. Like it's clear, concise, and, and exacting. I mean, it's the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the soul from the spirit. That's what we're about. Yeah, good stuff. All right, uh, I could go. On, I could go on for three more seconds. No, two two five three four six five thirty two zero five. It's two five three four six five three two zero five. You can uh, give us a call and tell us what you think, and uh, you won't get us. You just get an answering machine. Tell us what you love, hate, doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, and if you forget the phone number, Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call two five three. Are you not hearing that in your? Uh, it's fine. But uh, he does not. Ha how does? How is that possible? No worries. I can hear you. That's all that matters. Did you hear the Unless, intro music? No. Oh, you didn't. <laughs> no. All of a sudden, we're on. I'm like, okay. <laughs> hmm. We can worry about that later. Interesting. Okay. Well, we don't have uh, the only thing I have is outro music, so we don't have any other clips. Uh, I, and I won't use my soundboard then. I wonder why you can't hear me. Anyway, I guess it doesn't matter. I can't wait for my new computer to get here. It's going to be so nice. Woot woot. Okay, you can also shoot us an What'd email. You, get? you got like a Cadillac, right? Or a Tesla? What'd you get? Uh, what did I get? I got... Uh, I'm yeah. kidding. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 Cars could, these days are like computers with wheels. You could call it the Chevy Traverse of computers. Nice. So it's not, you know, it's not... I'm not blinging. It's not, I'm not rolling in the Escalade, but uh, it's, it, you know, but it, it's, it's functional and the family can get around in it. That's what matters. Nice. Um, okay. Very nice. Okay. Let's, uh, let's jump in. Let's jump into this. So this is an email that uh, Rob has not heard of yet. 
but that's okay because it's gonna my favorite kind. It's gonna launch us into our discussion. Mandy writes and she says, as Passover approaches, I have a question regarding First Corinthians five eight. I'm having difficulty figuring out if Paul is speaking of the literal feast here. I'm leaning toward yes, but do we know if this letter was written near the time of the feast? Okay. I have called First Corinthians the Passover letter. And the reason why is because whether or not it's around the time of Passover, which I think I think it's pretty obvious it is. Um, yeah, because by the end, he's like, I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Right. Um so yeah, the, I mean, I think that I think that it's it's around the time of of um, uh, of Passover. But the reason I've called it the Passover letter, no matter what time of the year it's written at, Paul continues to go back to Passover language. So he's he uses the Passover as the running theme throughout the entire letter. Um, the Passover is the focus, and he uses that as the theological catalyst to make his points. And um, so let's just go read that passage real quick. Let's see if I can bring this up here. Yeah. Okay, First Corinthians five. Let's start in. Um, let's start in six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So right there, we're already talking, we're already focusing in on Passover. Right. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been cru- uh, sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Well, what festival? He's talked about cleaning out leaven, which is obvious to be the, um, you know, the command to clean out leaven from your homes. <clears throat> and uh, then he's talked about uh, Christ being our Pascha sacrifice. And this is interesting because Pascha is, is the word for Passover. And um, so there's, I mean, there's so many implications here. Um I think the first thing that we need to do is ask whether or not Paul believes that uh, the, the Corinthians are celebrating the Passover or not. Uh, and the reason why is because they don't have a Passover lamb. And this actually gives huge implications for us today, right? By the way, this is my focus of study in terms of the Passover. Actually, right now I'm writing a, a, a different topic uh, on my main key verse, which is uh, uh, Luke twenty two nineteen. Uh, I've shifted from the Eucharist and the uh, institution of the Eucharist uh, to whether or not uh, Luke twenty two nineteen establishes the Catholic, the Roman Catholic priesthood. I mean, spoiler alert! I think everybody knows that I'm going to say it doesn't. Um, but I had no clue that the, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, actually uses that verse to say that uh, the cat that it instituted the Catholic priesthood. Anyway, so um, I've shifted gears in that verse, but. All of this has been my focus of study, so this, I, I get excited talking about this stuff. Anyway, when we look at, at 1 Corinthians and he says, therefore celebrate the feast, what is he talking about? I think it's obvious that he's talking about Passover, and the reason why is because he's just mentioned the Passover sacrifice, right? Therefore, and, and cleaning out the leaven. So the, the Corinthians have no doubt of what he's talking about. But he tells the Corinthian people who are what? It's, it's something ridiculous, like 460 nautical miles, meaning across the ocean. That doesn't mean going around. Um, it means going straight. So 460 nautical miles, I think it is, to Jerusalem. So what do you have to have to celebrate the Passover? Most people are going to tell you you have to have the Passover lamb, right? Passover lamb can only be sacrificed in Jerusalem. So obviously, they're not traveling down to Jerusalem to have their lamb slaughtered and then coming back. In fact, 
the idea that the community would travel down, maybe they have one or two people that might go, but even that's unlikely. The fact of the matter is, is that Paul expects these people to be celebrating Passover in Corinth. And the Passover lamb that they have is Christ. So to me, that's super interesting. Um, I, one of the things that we need to be, for this show in particular, one of the things that we really need to be focusing on too is in fact the context of what's going on. So he says, therefore, celebrate the feast. Um, I think that that's talking about, or celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he goes straight. So what's interesting, the other thing that I want to note here before I pass this over to Rob, the other thing I want to note is that he's talking about who can be, who should be associated Okay, so in terms of let's let's just say that for right now, let's say that we're talking about the Passover meal. Who's associated with the Passover meal? Well, he he says he's he says this is not about un- unbelievers. We expect, you know, right in the passage after this, he says we expect the unbelievers to act like unbelievers. What we're talking about are believers within the community. And uh, and so. This is all framed, I think we're going to see, this is all framed in terms of community and who who we associate with. Okay, I'm going to pass that over to you. What do you think, Rob? Do you think yeah, that it's good, talking about Passover? Good topic. Yeah. I think... <laughs> I think it's Passover's done away, and he's just using it as a metaphor for, like, the new religion. Yeah, so... Rob okay, is getting okay. Rob is getting to the age where he thinks that sarcasm like that is really funny. So just bear with us, folks. Okay, okay. Someone emailed me, and they know who it is, and they said uh, someone came to their. Uh, I won't mention names because I didn't get her permission, but uh, one of our listeners about someone coming to their fellowship talking about pyramids and oh no, um, what was the other stuff? Oh, and there's no hell. About these people, not that they were teaching it, but new people came and started like teaching this to their community. And I said, wow, so the Egyptian priests and and wicked people in general, like they're happy with whatever these people are teaching. <laughs> anyway, and I said, you should make them teachers. They apparently have stuff to uh, to reveal to everybody. Of course, I was being sarcastic. So yeah, I think you're right, Caleb. I have kind of done that a little bit. No, um, <laughs> sorry. Rob thinks he's hilarious. Paul, Paul is, <laughs> what's clear, because we, we got we got chapter five, then we come to chapter 10 and 11 of First Corinthians. And I, I like how you call it the you know Passover epistle or something like that. I think Passover epistle has the alliteration that you need oh, yeah. better than Passover letter. But um that these, these are people that Paul had, if we accept what Acts says, Paul was in Corinth for 18 months. So you can't have an 18-month period without at least one Passover. Right. So that means they celebrated Passover with Paul at least one time, possibly twice. And he's writing this letter to them, right? So back to your point of what, what is it absolutely reasonable and plausible 
for us to posit as uh, pertaining to knowledge of the recipients of the letter. And I think you're spot on to say that they are thinking in terms of Passover because Paul is, uh, because they've learned it, right? They've learned to think about the, the redemption story in the Torah and to see themselves as grafted in by faith through new life in the resurrected Messiah. And they've learned about which he gets to not in chapter five, but in chapter 11, and maybe we'll get there today. Oh, we to, will. To, under, to, to, to enter into that moment uh, before Yeshua's crucifixion. Because Paul also is teaching them that you, that in Messiah's love for you, he died for you. And your new life with him is part of that part of that transformation is that you are crucified with him you go to the cross with him because he takes your sin to the cross and you die the condemnation of the torah against you because of your sin has been met it has been paid not by your physical death but by messiah's death for you me as an individual, I couldn't even, one death wouldn't be enough to satisfy my transgression against God's holiness. Right. Oh. So they understand this. They understand that to be a new creation Messiah is to be part of a new living community and that that community must be discerned. Right. Heresy is not, it, it, he says it's, there must be heresies that arise. Why? Because people need to grow in discernment of who's a true believer and who's not. And so in chapter five, he's talking about a person who was among them who had behaved worse than it says, that, you know, Gentiles don't even do this. And they need to be knocked out of the, they're not reckoned as part of the community. And he's vigilant for new believers to to be able to have fellowship where they trust one another, they're, they're sharing the truth. And um, that is something that's precious and, and important and new. And he uses in chapter 11, he uses the Passover meal as the exemplary meal. Not that it's replicated whenever you want it, but that it is when, whenever believers are true believers are together they can, they can um, uh, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But it's an anticipatory rehearsal of Passover with Yeshua in the kingdom. It's an anticipatory Passover. Uh, so even, even if a, a church is, does close, I, I think if a church does communion, it should be closed communion. In other words, at the very least, they're they're making an effort to differentiate who's who is in unity of the spirit, who is in unity here, and and to have some sort of border. Rob's, I think ju that's, Rob's jumping the gun, but that's okay uh, because actually people. Well, it's are, all tied together. Go, I, I can pause. Pe people can, are already. Uh, uh, people are already uh, pushing the pushing this too. So, um, first of all, let's let's just quickly go back. 
Uh, just some guy says, I've never met a Hebrew reader that denied the deity of Christ. Does the copyrights spell that out? Or are we just painting in broad wow. brushstrokes? Yes, you have. I, I can almost, I would put money. I would I bet, have. I, I would, sure I would bet have. money that you have met uh, Hebrew readers that deny the deity. First of all, Joe Young, uh, I'm sorry, Joe Good is, is uh, not only denies the deity of Christ, but um, he was one of the people who was instrumental in helping the wheel, uh, the wheelocks, the wheelers, the wheelers. I think it's the wheelers, the wheelocks. Anyway, um, they're the people who actually uh, copy wrote the the term Hebrew root. They he was instrumental in helping them. They came out of Worldwide Church of God. Uh, Joe Good denies the deity of Christ. All of those people were instrumental in basically starting the Hebrew roots movement in the '80s. And then you have people who are associated with Joe Good today who don't come out and say, "Oh, I deny the deity of Christ," but they will not use, they will not say that Yeshua is Yodhebave. And I have said many, many times, many, many times on this show, ask your teachers if they believe that Yeshua is Yodhebave and use those words. People don't realize that their teachers are not. People don't realize that their teachers are not being honest with them and deny the deity. Anyway, um, unashamed of Jesus says, wouldn't the Passover have changed though, since the, in, the since the institute of the bread and wine as Christ's body and blood? First Corinthians ten eleven. Let's go there. This is gonna, this is actually gonna move our conversation exactly where we want it to go. Okay, so First um, Corinthians ten, and we're gonna look. Uh, we're going to start in 14. I don't know if that reference was right, but uh, we're going to start 1 Corinthians 10, 14 and following. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, up until this point, he's been talking about the fact that you cannot. And so unity within the body is like one of the key factors in this book, right? Having unity within the body. And so he's talking about unity here. And he's saying that you cannot but have... But not, not unity just for the sake of unity. Absolutely. I mean, you could say... You know, a, a unity in the truth of the resurrected messiahs, right? I mean, in the truth. Sorry, go ahead. No, absolutely. And so he's saying you can't, be, you cannot partake of the table of demons and the table and the table of the Lord. And this is this is his whole point. The way that I understand this is that you can't be going to the pagan temple and participating in the pagan temple and then coming here and being part of this community. That's what I see. Okay, let's read this passage this is, because this is actually, this gets to the heart of it. Therefore, my, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants? Are those? I'm sorry. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants uh, uh, participants with demons. Okay, so um, the institution that is being uh, referenced here by unashamed of, of Jesus is this reference in 14 uh, and and so on. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? Okay, so let's hash this out because this is one that has stumped me for quite some time. And I'm not going to tell you that I think it's, um, that it's, uh, that I've figured it all out. What he, what he does here, though, is 
Okay, let's go back to, to, to Luke twenty two nineteen. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, what is he talking about? In in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to reemphasize this, but he, he actually informs us that there's two cups. Now, scholars have debated ad nauseum whether or not the, uh, Paul screwed up. Maybe he re-references the first cup. No, I think that there's two cups, and actually Dennis Smith has done excellent work on this. He's literally written the book on the Dapnon. Dapnon just means like banquet meal or supper, okay? And basically what happens, let's walk through this real quick. At any Greek symposium, okay, any Greek um, Dapnon meal that's a formal meal, they have what's called a triclinia, and that is uh, tables or couches, basically, that you lay down at around tables in a U-shape, okay? They start the meal, and they offer, the, within the Roman society, what they would do is they would uh, take a cup, and they would offer, uh, they would sanctify a cup to a pagan deity. They would eat their meal proper, and there might be other cups throughout the meal that would be, like, sanctifying onto different things, okay? But then at the end of the meal, they would end their meal with another uh, with, with another cup, another specific sanctifying cup, okay? And then there was uh, different kinds of meals, but in the f- philosophical Dapnon, then somebody would get up and give the oratory. They would give their, their exposition on something, okay? Yeshua, now, what people in the Torah movement have not wanted to do is, is admit that anything could be cultural that's not like Jewish culture within the scriptures. And I totally reject this. The Last Supper is clearly a Dapnon. It's clearly uh, modeled after the Roman Dapnon. There's no doubt about it. They do the exact same thing that, that is happening in the Dapnon. Okay, and this isn't bad because it's not a pagan thing. It would be like saying, well... You know, Americans eat with uh, with a fork and a knife and not with chopsticks. And then if you see somebody eating at church with a fork and a knife, you say, oh, that's pagan because it's you're not, you know, you're not eating with chopsticks. No, no, no. It's like culture dictates these kind of things. It's not necessarily wrong or, or, or not. It's just cultural. So anyway, the Last Supper is a Dapnon and they have two cups. They have a cup that begins it. And uh, I have done research to try to show that the breaking of bread is uh, to start a meal, to bless the meal. So this is representative of the meal. The cup itself at the beginning of the meal, I believe, is a representation of the meal proper. At the end, the, uh, the cup that is at the end of the meal is like the bookend to mark the end of the, the, the uh, ceremonial meal. Okay, so you have the uh, you have the cup at the beginning, you have a cup at the end, and we see this in in First Corinthians. And so what Yeshua does is he takes that the, those two cups and he takes the bread at the beginning, and he says, "Do this in remembrance of me." This is not saying bread and wine. What he's saying is this meal, this entire meal, do this in remembrance of me. That's what the cups, the two cups, and the bread represent. They represent the uh, ceremonial meal of the Passover. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So I'm convinced that Luke 22, 19 is a specific reference to the Passover. Okay, I'm going to stop talking for a few seconds. I'm going to let you jump in here, and then we will move on to... Yeah, one the- other, yeah okay, one other point on the Luke 22 passage I brought up was just to add is um, verses 15 and 16. 
So Yeshua says to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Pascha, yep. This Pascha with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until. And so, uh, and so I take it also that that also is a signification for us that ties down the whole another bit of of first uh, Corinthians, the Maranatha, right? Our Lord come is anticipatory of Passover specifically, right? And now, so, does that mean Yeshua? Does that mean I mean? Does that mean I'm going to put eschatological like clock on it and or, or a season and say it must be Passover season when Yeshua returns? I don't know. I, I'm not going to claim that, but I do believe it's a tie down for an anticipatory, like uh, like in First Corinthians 11, we declare. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, it's a meal that anticipates Passover. It Not just any Passover. It anticipates a Passover with Yeshua. So, so I, I completely agree with you. Unashamed that Jesus says this explanation of two cups is not in the scriptures, though. Actually, I would say that it is. And the reason why is because what you have how, how is... How do you say it's not? Yeah, go ahead. In, in, in the Gospels, it says that he takes the... Before the supper, he took a cup and he blessed it. Okay? So before the supper. So you have one cup right there. Okay? And now what, what I would say the majority of people within the modern Christian church want to say is is that that's it, bread, wine, bread, juice, whatever, that's the representation, okay? But then Paul specifically says in 1 Corinthians 11, after the meal, okay, so I understand that what Unashamed of Jesus is saying is that the explanation that I gave was not necessarily spelled out in the, in the scriptures, but what I'm saying is, is that we see two cups. We see him say this about two cups. Yeshua says it's about two cups, not one. And so what is the significance of that? And if we look at the historical context of the Dapnon, there it, it's, it's spelled out. The historical context dictates that what Christ is doing is he is marking out a specific, and this is what the, the various cups in the, in the Romans uh, uh, Dapnon were meant to do, was to mark out specific sections of a meal. And this is exactly what Yeshua does. He uses, he uses the two cups in the exact same way that all of the culture around him does that. So if we look at the historical context, which we have to do in all hermeneutics, all hermeneutics have to look at the historical context. So if you're going to be honest with the historical context, then what Yeshua is doing is he is taking the two cups, he is showing a specific section of the meal, and he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. That, I mean, that's... And, and, what is it, and what is it he's doing? He is united to the elect by his love. And he is going to the cross. Right. So, and his, so, so when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, he's talking about redemption. He's talking about what he is about to accomplish. And in, in the, in the hours to come, as well as that he won't drink it again until the kingdom, or he's not going to eat this Passover again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. 
that is so it has a, a present historical tie down meaning as well as an eschatological fulfillment meaning. And I, what I'm suggesting is that Paul grasped this and has communicated it to the Corinthians and that that informs their understanding. So I completely agree with you, Rob. And, and that's the, the content, I guess what, what I'm doing, that's the content of the instruction of the date not. We haven't, yes, I completely agree. We haven't even gotten to our main topic yet, but people, but th- this conversation is so fun. Okay, so, uh, un- un- uh, no, Robert says, they represent the flesh and blood of our king, brother, where are you at? Yeah, I completely agree with you. As did what? As did the Passover meal. This is one thing that I think that many Christians don't understand. The Passover lamb represents Christ. When he says, uh, when he says, says as, uh, eat this, uh, he takes bread and he, and he passes it out. What is it a representation of? Is it a representation, is it just the bread or is he talking about the entire meal? I think he's talking about the entire meal. And therefore, that includes the sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me includes the entire sacrificial meal. And I'm not alone in this, by the way. This, this, uh, many great scholars say this. Okay, so that, that's number one. I agree completely. It represents the body and blood of Christ, as did the Passover meal proper. Okay, so that's number one. Number two. And, and, this, and w- if I may, there's a lot of things out there specifically in the Messianic movement. I think it's in, it's even bled over into the Hebrew roots movement of using the medieval Jewish Passover Seder right. as the model for understanding uh, of, of how we're to understand the counts in the gospels in first Corinthians 11. Yeah. And I think what, what Caleb, what we need to remember is underlying what Caleb's pointing out here assumes that we've already said, no, a lot of things had in the post-gospel world, the Jewish tradition had continued to modify and shape uh, the Passover Seder. Um, and so we can't look at the medieval or, or modern representation and then insist that each part somehow points to Yeshua. Now you can do that, but you're, you're, you're being a midrashist. You're, right. you're not actually exegeting. So that's just the differentiation. Go. Okay, so Clayton says, Jesus or the apostles can't add, and this is in the reference to an institution of something new, that it, that would be like the communion, okay? Uh, Clayton says, Jesus and the apostles can't add no commandments according to Scripture, so he could not institute a new ordinance. This is, I hear this a lot from people in the Torah movement, this is a complete misunderstanding of the Deuteronomy passage. The well, Deuteron- it's, like th- it's like this, it's like saying, you know, like Yeshua saying, you know, it says, you shall not kill. But I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're okay. already guilty of murder. It says you shall not commit adultery. But if you've already lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. That's what we're talking about. He's not adding. He's showing the the razor surgical precision of God's commandments. Okay, but but even then, I think that God is allowed to, as much as he wants, including Yeshua, is allowed to add commandments. And the reason why is because... The Deuteronomy passage where he says you're not allowed to add or take away from this law, he's talking about the 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 treaty, the the covenant, the land covenant. I agree that nothing can be added or taken away from the land covenant, but the point is is that God is allowed to make as many laws as He wants. It might not pertain to the to the uh, the land covenant with Israel, but it certainly. But He is allowed. So, for instance, buying and selling on the on the Shabbat is this found in the land covenant? No, it's not. Is it instituted in the Bible? Absolutely, by the prophets. 
So we know for well, right, and we know from Revelation, for example, Jeru- no, Jerusalem's not mentioned in the Torah explicitly, right? And that's part of the rationale behind the Samaritans' claim that Jerusalem's illegitimate. Right. So at some point, the revelation of the place that the Lord would choose was indicated as specifically Jerusalem, and and uh, that became in the Second Temple period a point of contention as to whether God really revealed Jerusalem or not. So that is a progressive uh, revelation. I, well, I mean, the, but the, I don't think I don't think that the gospel message of around the Last Supper was instituted. I think it was always that that was always going to be the case. You know what I mean? Passover sure. was always pointing to Yeshua. Oh, absolutely. I completely that, agree that's, with you. That's, I guess, I, I mean, to say it's not like, it's not like Jesus said, oh, you know, and this is what you see. Oh, they took the Old Testament things and then like reframed them and made them work for their new kind of religion. That's, that's wrong thinking. Okay. Let's keep going because we haven't even gotten to the fun part. First Corinthians 11. Let's start... Well, first of all, context is king here. Um, remember that he's talking about whether or not women are allowed to, um, that women need to be submissive to their husbands, so on and so forth. Whether well, Which is really, it's, right, it's, it's really the, the high calling of, of a man who's a believer, like the fact of what it means to be a man. I is, completely agree, but, yeah. but he's talking about whether or not women should, should have, like, he's talking about hairstyles, I think. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so then he comes into um, verse 17. Let's read this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, as a ecclesia, I hear that there is divisions among you, and I believe it, 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 it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating it, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. I think that this is, I, I'm starting to believe that this is a key phrase right here. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do you not have houses uh, to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For... I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, <coughs> excuse me, he broke it <coughs> and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you drink it. This is different than the Luke 22 passage, by the way, um, which is really interesting. Pardon me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. So, so far we were in some interesting territory, but this is where it really gets, this is where the firecrackers really happen. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay. Yeah, and who's his type for that? Judas. Right. Okay, but here's the thing, is that 
let me explain my thought pattern on this. Okay. Um, there's been people who have said, oh, well, first of all, this is the, this is the, uh, this is the source text for the, uh, mainstream Christian church to use to not allow people to, uh, who are unbelievers to eat, uh, to take part in, in communion. Okay. So, so this got me thinking, well, if he's talking about the Passover, then does that mean that we shouldn't have unbelievers at our Passover Seder? And then I got to thinking about the idea of pedo-baptism. If a church believes in pedo-baptism and they baptize all their infants, then shouldn't they be able to participate in the, in the communion? And what do you have if you have a three-year-old taking communion? Can they examine their heart? Uh, the other thing that that really struck me was, you know, I take communion. I believe that it's fine to take communion, and I will take communion with a body of believers, as long as they don't believe in transubstantiation, because I think that that is, I think that that's idolatrous. Um, anyway, not the point. So I have no problem taking communion with a body of believers. And the last time I was taking communion, which was extremely recent, uh, I was taking communion with some uh, with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I thought to myself, you know what, this is, whether or not they see it this way or not, the way that I see this is that uh, we are all one body, and I've come to believe that when believers come together and eat a meal together, they are actually performing an act of worship. Okay, they're worshiping the Lord. In other words, we see within the scriptures that many times eating a meal is actually a place where people come together and they worship the Lord in that. It, the meal itself, the meal proper itself, is actually a form of worship. And uh, Andrew McGowan, who's, uh, who's Anglican, but McGowan has argued that the, uh, that the communion celebration was actually a full meal all the way up into the fourth century. It wasn't, it wasn't the elements. We don't see just the elements, bread and wine. And so this right there shows you that the uh, first 400 years of believers believed that the bread and wine representation was actually of uh, an entire meal, nonetheless. So, so then all of this comes down to the idea of, for me, it comes down to ask the question, is Paul talking about a Passover meal here? Or is he talking about something else? Because it sure seems as though from the context and everything, if we take the broader, uh, you have two lines of, of, of thought here from Paul. And I've thought about this a lot in the past couple of days since, since Rob and I started talking about this. On Monday, we started hashing this out, and, it, and I had more questions than I had any solid answers. But I have really kind of poured over the, the entire book. You have two themes here. You have the theme of Passover, there's no doubt about it. But you also have the theme of unity. And I think that what Paul is doing is he's using the Passover as the exemplary, the exemplary, I'm not saying that right. Exemplary, that's the word I used, exemplary meal. Yeah, the exemplary meal of community. In other words, that Christ is the focus, that we come together, that we worship God together, that we are one community. There's going to be differing, uh, differing views. But when we come into 1 Corinthians 11, is he still actually talking about the Passover meal proper, or is he talking about something else and using the Passover itself still as the example? And I'm starting to believe that that's actually the case. I, I know people are getting their stones ready. I think actually there might be something to the idea of communion. Now, this is a flip for me. I, there, there are shows that we have 
from Messiah Matters of me saying that this that uh, there's no such thing as communion. And I'll be completely honest with everybody. I think one of the reasons that I've pushed so hard against the notion that this could be that, that Paul could be talking about something outside of the Passover is because I don't want to give credence to communion, to be honest. And I don't know if that's actually the right or the mass or the mass. Yeah, well, definitely not the mass. But and the reason the reason why is because I don't I don't I've never wanted to give credence to that. That's a bad reason to uh, to to not look at the text honestly. So when I look at the text now, I'll tell you where my mind kind of is, and I'm still I'm still trying to wade through this. So I'm not necessarily convinced 100% one way or the other, but I'm leaning this way. I'm leaning to the idea that. Uh, that Paul is seeing any community meal where uh, believers come together and worship God together as a community, as uh, a time to not only build, but a time to worship God. And what he's saying, he's using the Passover meal, which I don't believe has been done away with. So I think that Paul still expects, just like in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, therefore celebrate the feast. So I, I think that he still expects the Corinthians to actually celebrate the Passover meal, and that that is the that's the meal of the year that every that's the you know that's the exemplary meal. But he's using that as the example of a meal, any meal where the community comes together and worships the Lord. And if somebody comes in. And, you know, we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom. So when we sit down, we are sitting down with believers to participate in the food of the kingdom, which is actually the word of God. And if we're sharing literal food together, whether that's a little bit of wine and a piece of, you know, a cracker or whether or not it's a full meal, we need to examine ourselves and realize that we need to be worshiping Christ, that we need to be worshiping God, and if we're not, then we then we're guilty of His own. We're, if we don't see that meal as the uh, the meal of the kingdom, and we're we're bringing down judgment on ourselves, I I'm leaning that way. What do you think, Rob? I think it is to, that that Passover is the focus. Um, I think that the the idea of examining yourself pertains to the men who represent their whole families and because with passover there it's an educational element where the children are asking questions so if the examine yourself does not apply to a three-year-old okay it doesn't apply i I tend to agree with that it's i mean the whole point from the beginning of of chapter 11 is the responsibility of the men and that's that's that is the uh the core assumption now, what about a? I mean, you can throw all these, uh, you know, halakhic, uh, you know, situations. What about a widow? You know, right. what about, you know, like, okay, Paul's not trying to address all those things. He's giving the the big picture. Um, but, but, I I I do imagine this. I imagine that because he's talking about, he's helping people who were primarily either some Jews who had become paganized or just Gentiles who were pagans and are used to certain meal uh, significances. Right. Yes. He's trying to help them transition away from that to a life focused set apart unto the gospel. And that's not an easy thing. And that takes patience. That takes time. And 
Passover is exempt. It, it is the core meal. Now, if you want to say, well, it seems like he's allowing them to maybe while they're hearing the gospel, they're actually want to like, even if it's not Passover proper, they're wanting to like rehearse it. They're wanting to have a meal that is a kind of a rehearsal and of, of what happened when Yeshua died for our sins. What was this last meal? What is the Lord's table? And what, is, what does it mean to be part of his people on the one hand? But on the other hand, Paul's saying this is a anticipatory celebration of a coming Passover where the Messiah himself will be again. So if you want to allow that, that people can have quote unquote communion, that's fine. I, I don't, ha I don't think there's a law against it, I, but I say this, I'll say it's, it, it must be framed as modeled and anticipate modeled after Passover and in anticipation of Passover. And the precedent that I would suggest in the Torah is the fact that uh, there is a Passover allowed that is not actually Passover in the second month. And we know that under the time of King Hezekiah, they celebrated a Passover. God heard their prayers and, and brought healing for the people, but it was in the second month. It wasn't, it wasn't what we would call a ideal Passover with respect to the Torah. We see that in the time of Josiah, but not in the time of Hezekiah. So it seems that there's an anticipatory element in the written Torah itself about there's something about Passover that is transferable to times outside of the first right. month. Yes. However, it never replaces that right core. Yes, that's yes. my position. Yes. Okay. So here's the thing: is we've ha we've had some. I mean, the, the chat room's on fire today, by the way. Um, and so. Somebody says, well, Jesus ate with tax collectors. Right, but, but in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, what does he say? He says, when you come together as an ecclesia. So he's not talking about your average meal. In other words, does this mean that if I'm with my brother in the Lord and I pick up an unbeliever in the Lord, I pick up my atheist friend, I can't go down to Carl's Jr. and get a burger because then I'd be, then I'd be, he wouldn't be seeing that meal as worship? No, no, that's not what it means. It means that when you come together as an ecclesia and you are members of the kingdom and you sit down to enjoy that meal, and it's not about food. He even says, if you're hungry, what do you do? Eat at home. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he says, eat at home. Don't, don't come here. You know, some of you are eating before everybody gets there. Some of you are getting drunk. If, if you're here for food, eat at home, man. We're coming together as people in the kingdom and we're showing, we're showing that we are brothers in the Lord. So I think... I mean, I, that means also if you're coming together for Purim, get drunk before the meal. Don't come and get drunk <laughs> at the meal. Yeah, no, I'm so, kidding. Bad. So, so bad. Just the, another, another, uh, another Rob joke. Um, but, but ultimately, I think, I think at this point, and you know, once again, I full disclosure here. This is a large shift for me in terms of the way that I viewed this. Uh, because you know you can even go back to other shows and and hear me say that I think that this is talking about the Passover. But I think that uh, I think that he's not specifically honing in on the Passover itself in this specific passage. He certainly is in five. In five, he's certainly talking about the Passover. 
I think what he's doing is he in 11, I think he's using the Passover meal and, and Christ's words to dictate how we as a, a community of believers should view our community meals as an ecclesia together. Yeah, the term breaking bread, uh, just to answer some of these quick questions, uh, the term breaking bread just means... And we see this throughout first century literature, including at Qumran. The term breaking bread just means having a meal. So to break okay, bread. Okay, so let me ask you this, Gil. Yeah. What about like in Acts where it says they're breaking bread? What if, does there have to be matzah and wine at every single one of these? Are those now elements? Are we calling these, these are elements to a, 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 a halakhically defined communion? Yeah. So or I, is it just, are, are these, again... That the Passover being this exemplary meal, but any meal, you don't literally, is he mean you literally have to have matzah? Or is he going to say, oh, you can have any bread and you don't really even have to have wine and you can still have a, a meal that represents the table of the Lord and that you're going to, if you're not, if you're not self-examined, that you're going to bring judgment on yourself. What and what? So yeah, the, the really good questions here. But the, but the overall point is is that we see a very 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 early a different kind of meal pop up. What is it? The agape meal. And so I think I think that this kind of explains where the agape meal comes from. Do the elements need to be there? No. Once again. You know, McGowan has done excellent work on this. People were using things. People were using full meals. Well, that we have we have icon early. You know, pre fourth century iconography of Christian tables, like with, with bread and with fish. Right. And we know that it's, um, it's kosher fish. Cause they're like, you know, there's like fins and scale. It's like trout or whatever, or tilapia, right? It's, yeah, they, it's, they uh, use, they use, they use milk. They used, some people used water. Some, you fruit, know, I think some have fruit, fruit cheeses fruit. as the bread instead of bread. So, I mean, the elements didn't get didn't get uh, solidified until the uh, until uh, around the fourth century. And I think it was the Fourth Lateran Council, the Fourth Lateran Council, which happened. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong. It's either the 900s or the 1100s. I don't remember. Fourth Lateran Council. I know it's the Fourth Lateran Council. They had to command people to take the elements. Because people, because only the priests were taking the elements at that point, and the and the people didn't want to. So, uh, so anyway, uh, I I think that uh, I I think that there the the fact that we see the agape meals pop up early, 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 and the fact that you have the the. Uh, communion, quote-unquote communion, being celebrated as a meal, as a meal all the way up until the fourth century by various communities. I think that, I think that there's something else going on here. And to be honest, I've, I've had a hard time with, with uh, 1 Corinthians 11 because I've never been able to figure out exactly what's going on in, in that passage. Um, so anything else you want to say before we go? No, no, I think I've, I think I've given my, you know, what I think about it. Yeah. 
Well, it's been an interesting one. I'm sure we're going to get some emails Happy on Purim, it. Happy Purim, everybody. Happy Purim, everybody. Um, I'm sure we're going to get some uh, some comments, and we'd love to hear them. So if you want to talk with us about this, you can do so by leaving us a message, 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chegatorresource.com, C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. We would love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this conversation and particularly on 1 Corinthians 11. And if you are like I was and uh, believe that uh, 1 Corinthians is only talking about a Passover meal, I'd love to hear how you uh, how you navigate 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, that would be very interesting. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it. Now, I, I don't know if I fixed your audio problems or not, Rob. I ch- certainly tried, but you might not be able to hear this. So if not... I'm sorry. Hopefully everybody else can. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, you know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.